Well, thank you, worship team, for, uh, for leading us in singing and worship this morning. Glad to be able to do that together. I wish all of you could sit in the front row and hear all of the voices coming in from behind you. That's a, a, a wonderful um, experience. Take your Bibles out if you have them with you. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, This passage we've already read together once this morning, and I trust that you've been uh, reading and and thinking through this passage this week as well. Last week, Pastor Mark helped us uh, to examine the first half of this chapter, and we saw that chapter 8 sort of represented a little bit of a shift from Paul's previous line of thought. In chapter 7, he's been discussing what he calls the painful letter, a letter that we don't have a copy of, was written after Paul's second visit to Corinth, a visit that that did not go well for Paul or for the Corinthians. Now in chapter 8, he's pivoted and is now discussing the collection that he's taking up to benefit the churches in Jerusalem. Paul reminded the Corinthian church that this project uh, was about God's grace coming to the Macedonians. The churches in this region would be the church of Berea and, and Philippi and Thessalonica. God's grace to that group of churches was to allow them to suffer persecution and hardship. And yet, at the same time, they were presented with this opportunity to contribute to this collection that Paul was taking up for the churches in Jerusalem. Those churches in Macedonia had risen to the occasion and had contributed far more than, than even Paul ever thought they would. Now Paul announces to the Corinthian church that God's grace is arriving to them as well. And they also are receiving this opportunity to uh, contribute to the exact same collection. As we mentioned last week, the struggles in the Corinthian church were a little different than those in uh, the churches in Macedonia. The churches up to the north in Macedonia would have been undergoing persecution from, from outside during this time. But the churches to the south like the church in Corinth, uh, would have been more plagued with internal conflict and and strife. Back in verse 10 of chapter 8, we learned that a year prior, the church in Corinth had actually agreed to participate in this project and had begun to do so, and yet um, likely in the midst of their their internal conflict, this, this collection sort of fell off of their off of their radar. And so Paul reminds them that uh, God's grace to them would be uh, in this opportunity to take up this this collection. And Paul doesn't want them to miss that opportunity. The collection not only benefits the churches in Jerusalem, but also benefits those who who give to it as well. As you found your place in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let me pray for us, and we'll dedicate the rest of our time together this morning to the Lord. Lord, we're thankful once again for your word. We're thankful for the gift that it is to come together and to study it in community. We want to humble ourselves before it, that we would be uh, transformed into the image of Jesus by your spirit. So as we examine this passage this morning, we ask you to uh, give us wisdom, give us insight, and and help us to know the ways in which uh, our lives need to be shaped by by this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the second half of chapter 8, 
which we read for this week, is largely about the Corinthian church's gift and how exactly that will be administered, administrated by Paul. And he tells the church who's coming to collect the money from them and what precautions are being taken to uh, ensure that it is handled honestly. Paul, in this passage, tells us that, that three people will be going to Corinth to uh, receive this gift. The first person is Titus. We see this in, in verses 16 and 17. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, is going to you of his own, own accord. So Titus is the first member of this traveling party. The second member is not named, but Paul calls him a brother uh, who was appointed by the churches in, in Macedonia. Here's what Paul says about him. With him, this would be Titus, with Titus we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our, our goodwill. The third member of the team is also referred to as a brother, but we also are not given his name. Uh, he's called a brother and, a, and apparently a co-worker of Paul's. Here's what Paul says about him. This is verse 22 of chapter 8. And with them... We are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his, his great confidence in you. So these three individuals get chosen by Paul and his team largely because he wants to demonstrate to the Corinthians that this collection is being handled with integrity. Here's what he says in verses 20 and 21 about this. He says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in, in the sight of man. Paul clearly sees here the need to not only conduct his own ministry with integrity before God, that's obviously essential, and Paul believes that he is doing that, but he also feels the need to demonstrate his integrity to the Corinthian church. So why would Paul go to such great lengths to defend his own integrity? I think there's probably two reasons at least why he does this. The first one is that he's dealing with the topic of money. Money is a difficult topic in a lot of ways, especially in churches. Jesus talks about money more than just about anything else during his ministry and the accounts that we have about him in the Gospels. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul instructs Timothy that the people in the church in Ephesus who are, who are rich, who are wealthier, will probably require some kind of directed or, or specialized discipleship. Money has a way of exposing the corruption that exists inside the human heart. In addition to this, we also learned back in chapter 2 that there were many people around this time who, and I think that the NIV really helps us out here back in chapter two, there are many people who peddle the word of God for profit. So these would be traveling teachers who are more like traveling gospel salesmen than announcers of the good news. 
The second reason why Paul needs to defend his integrity is that we know about his long and sort of difficult and rocky relationship with the Corinthian churches. We've heard quite a bit about this so far, even in this letter of 2 Corinthians. But if we think back about how this church was founded in Acts chapter 18, Paul uh, did that at that point in time and then had planned to make a second visit to them. He was going to take a trip through, through Macedonia in the north and then come down to the south, visit this church, and then head back east towards Ephesus. But he ended up changing his, his plans so that he came to the Corinthian church and visited them first. This apparently was a, a little bit of a surprise to them. I don't know that they were expecting that. Maybe it caught them off guard somehow, but that visit of Paul's did not go well. Paul had a conflict there with some people in the church who, uh, who he thought were engaging in sin, and he would uh, call them out for that. And then while uh, he was there, someone apparently did something to discredit him or to, or to shame him or hurt him publicly in some, in some way. That causes Paul to leave the church and then cancel his plans to come back and visit them on his way through after his, his visit to Macedonia, which then leads some people in the church to criticize Paul for being unreliable and, and changing his plans too much. So when the Corinthian church is gathered together, and this letter, which is delivered to them by these, these three people who are going to receive the collection, they'd carry this letter with them, they show up to the church, and this letter is read aloud in their midst. A lot of questions, I think, would be, would be raised at this point. Is Paul actually reliable? Can we trust Paul with our money? Are we sure he's not actually one of these traveling gospel salesmen who's actually looking to make a profit off of, off of us? Paul knows that these questions will be raised when this letter is read. And he also knows that the reputation of Jesus and the gospel is at stake depending on how those questions get answered. So Paul says that they're doing everything they can to make sure that they're doing what is right before God, of course, but also before, before the Corinthians. Paul demonstrates his integrity by the way he's administering the collection. Paul himself is not actually apparently going to Corinth to collect the money. He's sending three other people who are who are trustworthy. The first one is Titus. We've heard about Titus already in the letter of 2 Corinthians. He has been to Ephesus at least once. Corinth, I'm sorry, he's been to Ephesus too, but he's also been to Corinth at least once, potentially more times than that. He would have been the one that carried the painful letter of Paul to the Corinthians and read it in their midst. And then when he got there and delivered the letter, he also served as a mediator between Paul and the Corinthians and was able to help them reconcile with one another from, uh, from Paul's uh, difficult visit there. And then he would have left the church and come back to Paul and reported the news that he'd, he'd been able to work things out with them. So the Corinthians know Titus. They've worked with him. They have good reason to trust him. The second figure is not named. We don't know why he's not named. That's kind of an interesting detail. And normally Paul is happy to name those who are, who are working with him. It could be that the Corinthian church just doesn't know these next two individuals, but they would meet them by the time the letter is read. So giving their names would not be, not be necessary or, or helpful. But Paul calls him a brother. 
He's known by the churches in that area, and probably that would mean the Macedonian churches. He's particularly known for his gospel preaching. But more importantly, I think for this, it's important to note that he wasn't actually chosen by Paul. This is not actually one of Paul's Paul's people. This was a, a person that was chosen by the churches in Macedonia who have already contributed to this collection by this point in time. So those churches contribute and then send this person along with Paul's team sort of as a, uh, a representative of that group. So he's coming to the Corinthians as well on behalf of those group, those group of churches who have, who have already contributed, contributed to this, this project. So the third person who Paul is sending is elected uh, apparently by Paul. He's a part of Paul's traveling group. Paul says he's uh, had a number of experiences with this person. He's been tested through a number of circumstances and has been uh, found, found, to be, found to be faithful. So we see with this group of three, three people, if somebody were to try to call the collection into question, if somebody were to accuse Paul of, of sort of fixing this or, or of everything not being totally above board, you would have to implicate Paul. You'd have to implicate his ministry team. And then you'd also have to implicate this group of churches in, in Macedonia who have sent this representative to, to certify that, that this is a, a good and, and worthy project. This is the way that Paul is sort of demonstrating to the church in Corinth that he is uh, being fully honest with them, and he's maintaining his integrity in the way that he's administering this, this gift. We see that clearly in this passage. For the rest of our time this morning, what I want to do is focus on this collection specifically and, and why this is so significant. Why has Paul gone to such great lengths to defend his integrity? What's really, what's really at stake here? I think it's easy in one sense to kind of look at this as Paul simply is noticing a need in one area, and he's wanting to meet that need with, with resources found from another, another area. What I want to do is look at a couple of other New Testament passages, and as we do that, I think we'll see that this collection has a, a more significant uh, weight to it than, than just simply uh, a matter of charity from, from one church to another. I think there's at least three reasons why this collection is especially significant for, for Paul. The first reason is that Paul has a significant history with the churches in Jerusalem who would be receiving this collection. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me, you're welcome to do that. Galatians chapter 2 is where we'll be looking just for a moment here. We'll look at the, at the latter half of that, that chapter. Remember that after Paul uh, was converted, after Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Paul spent a long time he says in Galatians, 14 years, he spent time in, in Arabia and Damascus, and then on his, on his first missionary journey as well. And then only after that period of time does he actually go to Jerusalem. Paul says that when he got there, he met with a group of leaders of the churches in Jerusalem, and he put before them the gospel that he was preaching among the Gentiles. And he was kind of checking that out with them to make sure that, that they were teaching the same, the same things. Here's what Paul says about the response that he received from the churches in Jerusalem, starting in verse 7 of Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, When they saw, they being the, the leaders of the churches, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, 
Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is Paul, who is Jew, meeting with a group of Jewish church leaders in Jerusalem and sharing with them the gospel that he is extending to the Gentiles. And as, as they hear Paul's message, they give it their blessing. They bless Paul and his mission and extend fellowship to him. That's a big deal for, for Paul. By the way, Galatians also tells us Titus is on this trip with Paul, and he would be at this meeting as well. Let's not ignore or throw away this last little comment here in verse 10 either. The only thing that the group of churches in Jerusalem ask of Paul is that, they, that he remembers the poor, which Paul says this is the thing he was excited about doing. He's eager to do this. So this collection from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, this collection benefiting the churches in Jerusalem is an opportunity to care for the poor in Jerusalem, which is the very place that Paul met with those leaders and was, was commissioned to continue his, his ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. That's the first reason why this collection is significant for Paul. The second reason this collection is significant is that for Paul, the Gentile churches in places like Corinth are in some ways indebted to the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. In order to see this, you could turn with me if you'd like to Romans chapter 15. We'll read a couple of verses from the end of Romans 15. In that passage, Paul is talking to the Roman churches about the exact same collection that is mentioned here. Here's what Paul says in Romans 15, uh, starting in verse 25. Paul says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, at that point I'll leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul Paul is drawing here on this theme of salvation coming to the Gentiles through God's promises to Israel. And it's only through the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus that the Gentiles have come to know the God of Israel. So to use Paul's language, the Gentile believers in Corinth have come to share in the spiritual blessings that God gave to the people of Israel in Jesus. Paul says that in light of that, it would only be right for the Gentile Christians to respond to this by sharing the material blessings that God has given to them and to those who are in need in Jerusalem. Paul says that, uh, that he, they did so happily. These churches were, were pleased to do that and that they were happy to share what they had with the Jewish Christians in, in Jerusalem. So this is not simply an act of, of charity, but for the Corinthians, this is an 
an act of, of gospel obedience. Which leads us to the third reason why this collection is especially significant for Paul. And that is that this gift, given by Gentiles and received by Jews, would represent the fellowship that they share in, in Christ. Let's keep reading in Romans 15 for a moment. We'll pick back up in verse 30. Paul says to those in the church in Rome, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul submits a prayer request here to the church in Rome. He says, pray for me for, for two things especially. One, that I'd be delivered from those Jews in Judea who, who don't believe in Jesus, who view Paul as a, as a traitor, who view Paul as, as uh, betraying his own, his own heritage, his own, his own faith. Deliver me from those who do not believe in Jesus in Judea. And then the second thing, that the, that the offering made by the churches in, in Macedonia and Achaia would be acceptable to the Jewish Christians there. Now, this is fascinating. Paul is concerned that the Jewish churches may not actually accept the collection that was taken up in Macedonia and Achaia. But it's easy to see, I think, why this would be the case. All we have to do is read in the book of Acts, and we can see that one of the main points of conflict and struggle in the early church is about how do we get Jews and Gentiles together worshiping God alongside of one another. There's no way that this particular issue can resonate with us the same way that it would have back in the first century. This is not one of the main issues I think that we struggle with in our churches today, but for them, this would have been near the top of the list. For Jews, it's difficult to wrap your head around how, for the last 1,500 years, God's people have had a certain culture and a certain law and a certain family heritage, and that was given to them by God himself. And yet now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Gentiles are brought into God's family through faith in him without reference to their, their culture or their ethnicity or their adherence to the Torah. For Gentiles, they wouldn't have a lot of context about what God has done for them through Abraham's family. They don't, they don't have that baked into their, their culture. So a lot of this would be brand new for them. How is it that, that they can be brought into God's family through a Jewish Messiah? What does that have to do with, with Gentiles? And then we end up with this question of how is it that we can have both of these groups of people worshiping alongside one another? How can they... How can they get along when their cultures and their backgrounds are, are so different? And so this creates conflict. If we look at the rest of the New Testament, we can see a lot of Paul's letters are written in some way or another to kind of get right at this issue. Galatians, Romans, parts of Ephesians are written especially to target this exact, this exact issue. We've been looking at the end of, of the letter of Romans here, which is known mostly for its rich doctrine and its rich theology. But the climax of that letter comes actually earlier in chapter 15. Paul goes through this whole line of, of justification by faith, and both Jews and Gentiles are sinners, and both Jews and Gentiles are saved 
in the same way. And that all leads up to this in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another. That's, that's the conclusion. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's exactly what Paul thinks this gift signifies. The Gentiles giving this gift to the Jews would, would demonstrate their acknowledgement that, that the Jewish Christians are, are really older siblings in the, in the same family as them. The Jews, in turn, on the, on the other side, if they accept this gift from the Gentiles, that would sort of signify an acknowledgement of God's work among the Gentiles, an acknowledgement that they're actually all one in Christ and that they need one another. Paul sees this collection as, as an extraordinary opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed to the whole world. What a testimony to the work of Jesus, who's uniting Jews and Gentiles together as one people, dedicated to God. And if we all belong to Jesus, regardless of background, regardless of, of any of those other factors, any, any boundary lines that we, we create for ourselves, if we all belong to Christ, then we all belong to one another. So for Paul, this collection is not only about allocating resources where they're needed. It's not only about that. It's an opportunity for these two groups of Christians who are totally different. They live in different places. They come from different backgrounds. It's an opportunity for them to acknowledge their dependence on one another. It's an opportunity for them to share fellowship with one another, to serve one another, and to love one another. That's why Paul says in, in verses 20 and 21 of 2 Corinthians 8, we take this course. This is the way we're doing things. We're selecting these three people. We're making all of these precautions as to how the gift is being uh, collected. We're, we're going through all of these extra steps so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Think about how the testimony of Paul and his team would change if it somehow came out that Paul was being paid under the table by somebody for, for doing this work, or if it was discovered that Titus was maybe stealing from the collection bag. Paul concludes chapter 8 with his instruction to the Corinthian church in verse 24. Here's what he tells them. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. At the beginning of chapter 8, we saw how Paul had uh, commended the Macedonian churches to the churches in Corinth. Chapter 8, he tells the Corinthians about God's grace to the Macedonians and how the Macedonians just, just did a, a wonderful work by rising to the challenge amidst their own difficulties and contributing more than, they, uh, more than anybody thought they could despite their circumstances. So he's been kind of using them as an example. He's been, he's been using them as an illustration for the churches in Corinth. Now here we find out that the opposite is also true. In Paul's conversation with the Macedonians, he's been telling them about the Corinthians. So he doesn't command or require or demand anything of them. He simply says, hey, we've been in Macedonia, the team and, and, and I, and, and we've been telling them about, hey, after this collection goes through Macedonia, it's going to go down south. 
And it's going to go to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians are just a great, generous group of followers of Jesus. And they're going to jump in on this project, this project too. Paul says, that's what we've been telling them about you. So now prove us right. Prove us right by completing this act of love that you started over a year ago. Now finish it. Finish this good work that God is doing for the churches in Jerusalem. That's how Paul concludes chapter 8. Let me just leave you with a few final thoughts from this passage as we, as we begin to, to close our time here this morning. Two primary thoughts from this text. One is that our financial integrity affects our gospel witness. Paul's made sure throughout this whole uh, sequence that no one can find fault with the way that he's handling the, the collection money. Now, of course, it's always possible, and this has happened throughout church history, it's always possible that somebody may falsely accuse Paul or one of his, one of his team members. That's out of Paul's control. Paul's not able to do anything about that. But he says, if anybody accuses us, at least it won't be, won't be justified because we have done everything right. We've done everything right before God. We've done everything right before, before people. The second thought is that God has called one people to himself in Christ. That means that we not only belong to Christ, we belong to one another. We belong to the same family. And we demonstrate our love for God by the way that we love one another. And the love that we share crosses whatever boundary lines we may have put up for ourselves, cultural, ethnic, economic, whatever you want to put in there. Our unified faith in Jesus transcends all of those. So when we show love to one another, we actually announce the gospel to one another once again and represent God faithfully to a, a world that is, that is watching us. Think about what a testimony to the gospel for this group of Gentile churches to contribute all the way on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea to the Jewish churches who come from a totally different background, but yet they have Jesus in common. And so they, they share with one another, another in that way. Next week, we'll pick up with the first five verses of chapter nine. So you can be uh, reading and thinking those through uh, this week, this coming week. Next Sunday, we'll, we'll dive in a little bit deeper into Paul's ministry and how he conducts himself and how he handles his interactions with, uh, with the Corinthian church. Let me invite you to stand, and we'll close our time together uh, with this benediction that's taken from, uh, from Romans chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that had been kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.